I am so glad that as Ben read that little part about the disappointingly hollow chocolate bunnies that you resonated. I heard it. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, you take a bite out of those things. You're, you're kidding me. Man, it should have something in here. I thought I paid good money for solid chocolate, but no. Well, so good to see all of you here today. Today, of course, Easter morning. So much that's a part of this weekend. Um, all the way from uh, the details of family and time together and Easter baskets and egg hunts perhaps uh, yesterday maybe and activities of Holy Week and then the impact of the world. Uh, Some of you just pointing out to me uh, um, uh, terrorist activities this morning, today, uh, Sri Lanka, hundreds, hundreds who've lost their lives, all of which highlights the, the question of the morning as we come to think about Easter again, the question of the morning being, is it really true? Is it really true? And if so, what does it matter? And if not, what does it matter? But is it really true? Really true. And let me just say, uh, for the families of those hundreds of worshipers today who've lost their lives and the hundreds who are injured, it matters a lot if it's really true. And it matters a lot for you, by the way. It does. It matters a lot for you because we live in a real world and and our lives go by and we search for meaning and someday our lives will be done. It matters a lot if what we remember and celebrate on Easter morning is really true as opposed to some nice cultural celebration with all the trappings that we enjoy. If it's just cute and nice and a theme of renewal in spring, oh, for goodness sakes, get me out of it. Uh, either either true or not, but let me know. And this morning, we want to grapple with a number of things. Um, if you have a Bible, I'd love to have you go with me to Matthew 28. If you have a study sheet from your bulletin, you'll notice the two key texts that we're going to comment on are there. Don't get used to it. We don't do that every Sunday, but I did today. Um, so uh, Matthew 28, if you uh, either look in your Bible or or there on your study notes, you'll want that. Uh, I brought a book just to help us get headed this direction this morning. This is a little book by Frank Turek. If you like to think about uh, reasons to believe, reasons to believe that biblical Christianity is true, here is a book that uh, would be of help to you. It's called Stealing from God. Frank Turek is what theologians call an apologist, which is a person who has dedicated his or her life to, to communicating truth that would prove the reality of biblical Christianity. Is it really true? And Frank Turek, along with a number of others, uh, operate in that school of theology, philosophy, history, so many elements go into that, that help the thinking person, the critically thinking person, to wrestle with reasons to believe. Now, this weekend, of course, coming up, several of Frank's uh, comrades will be in town, uh, Seattle, uh, Josh McDowell, Sean McDowell, Greg Kukul, and this other guy whose name I don't remember because I didn't recognize it, but he has a PhD from USC. Uh, they'll be in town up in Seattle wrestling with issues of truth and relevance to today's culture. If you like that information, I, I have one flyer on it. I'm not giving it away, but I'll share it with you, the information. But Turek would live for days like today. That is, to invite people to think, to wrestle with, is is what we celebrate on Easter actually historically true? Is there reason to believe that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead? And if so, 
Uh, so what? Well, we want to step into that just a bit today. One morning, you can't do all, uh, everything that a person can do in a book. Stealing from God, uh, I commend to you. I'll mention a bit more of it later. But I want to pray for us that God would help us. We're going to uh, walk down a certain path today in two texts, looking at the person of Jesus and this business of resurrection. But I would love for us to pray. Let's ask God's help as we do that. Our Father, we come uh, on this very busy weekend, and certainly most of us involved with activity and uh, children and family and so on, uh, stepping out of a busy week and a busy life for a morning here. <clears throat> our Father, as we've mentioned already, our minds are with uh, all kinds of other people around the world who likewise are celebrating Easter today, people of faith or people of inquiry people who just want to be a part of something. And Father, as well, uh, our minds go to the families of those over in Sri Lanka who today are grieving uh, the brutal ending of many lives, people who'd come to worship on an Easter morning. Our Father, as we come to the text today, we too grapple with things of great importance to every person here, and we ask for your help to hear and to understand and as your spirit convinces our hearts uh, to believe it. So do your work today. Oh God, I pray in Jesus name. Amen. If you look at the texts there in front of you, Matthew 28, which you have heard already uh, read this morning as Luke began our worship service. This is one of the four gospel accounts that give the details of that first Easter morning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each come at it just a little bit different, different flavors commenting on different people and different emphases and so on. But Matthew, of course, there in front of you, uh, because you've heard it already, I'm not going to read it again. I'm going to comment on several things as we move ahead here, and then we'll shift to Romans chapter 1 in just a moment. But down at the bottom part of your study sheet on that first page, I want to take a couple of minutes on this and then take a look with you some details from Matthew. The essential role of Easter in Christian faith. Uh, I want you to know that I know how important today is, not just as a, because of cultural trappings, but theologically and in terms of truth. I'm well aware of, of this day, Easter. Uh, one writer, I give you his name, calls the resurrection of Christ a necessary and crowning credential, uh, saying specifically that without Easter, there is no Christianity. By saying without Easter, he doesn't just mean today. He means the actual historical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he says, much as the Apostle Paul does in the next reference there, 1 Corinthians 15, that if Christ has not been truly raised from the dead, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. We need to understand that. And if you're grappling with these things uh, yourself, I want you to know that the rest of us who've become convinced of this also are aware of the importance of this. It matters a lot if Jesus actually rose from the dead or if it was just some, some cute story. Uh, those of us who are in that line of biblical faith have come to the place where we've said, no, I believe it. I believe that history demonstrates its truth. Now, I want to comment about history and demonstrating truth here, as we have in front of us one of the written records. Uh, various apologists, uh, Frank Turek, one of them, but along with many others, 
is quick to point out that one of the questions people ask about biblical Christianity and the resurrection of Jesus, a good question is something about, worded differently, uh, does, what does science do with this? Does science prove or disprove Christianity? And various apologists correctly point out that that's the wrong question. Uh, if you go back to eighth grade science, which was not a banner event for me, uh, not so much the teacher or the topic, just my eighth grade attitude. Yes, I remember. But eighth grade science, among the things that I did take away, I learned something then about the scientific method, as some of you know. Science grapples with properly things that are repeatable. So you come up with a hypothesis. That's what the teacher made you do. Remember that with lab coats or whatever little Petri dishes? You came up with a hypothesis, and then you had to test it and find out if your hypothesis would prove true. So it works, science works on repeatable events, right? Uh, Science doesn't work on elements of history. You need a different method, historical method, literary method, literary historical method, some would call it, to prove something in history. For example, uh, you believe, all of you, I think rightly so, that at some point you were born. But you cannot prove that scientifically. It's not a repeatable event. So if someone would say, can you prove scientifically that you exist? You really couldn't do it. You would need some other way of doing it. So if you were going to prove by the literary historical method that you were born, uh, how would you go about this? Well, you would find witnesses to this event. Any idea who you might ask? Well, if your mother is still alive, she would be a good person to ask. Mom, was I born? Did you give birth to me ever? You, you, and she would tell you she was there. If there were others present attending to your birth, they would be able to, yeah, it was you, a little loud mouth kid or whatever. They would say, I was there. So you would look for witnesses. You would look for written documents called a birth certificate and you hope it's correct there have been discussions about correct and incorrect birth certificates over the course of our lives so you'd look for historical documents and hopefully prove their prove their veracity in order to demonstrate yes in fact you were born this day this time i'm saying you don't use science to prove you were born you use other methods like you use history to prove something's true or not all of that takes us to a biblical text biblical texts claim to be uh, written documents that you would look to to say these events did or did not happen. That's why the truthfulness of the Bible really matters a lot. Now, some people look at the biblical text and suggest, and one of these I read this morning, a blog from a person who takes the other viewpoint, uh, who would dis- who he would say that the biblical documents were written later by early followers of this new cult or religion called Christianity, and they, they deified Jesus, and they, you know, wishful thinking. I mean, people don't really do this, but they were just kind of putting a good, a good show together using these different gospel accounts. And I, I put here in front of you some evidences for the accuracy of the biblical record, and I'm just going to mention a couple. There's a whole school of thought here. So I mentioned just a couple to tell you there's a lot more out there in this, in this realm, if you would like. Okay, but from the text in front of you, we read earlier, Matthew 28, uh, you, you see at the very beginning of the verse, uh, very beginning of that chapter, uh, the writer, Matthew, says Mary and this other Mary went to see the tomb. Well, stop right there. 
Uh, if you were writing this text later, you're making it up. If you're trying to craft a story, uh, the last thing you would do in that time would have been to have the first visitors to the tomb be women. And is, this is not a slam on women today. This is about history, all right? But at this time, in this place in history, women were not considered credible uh, witnesses in a court of law. I am so sorry to tell you that. But if you were, and a point, of course, is if you were making up a story and you were trying to say something was true, you'd put some good, strong men there in verse 1. And so the idea that it says there are women would suggest maybe that's really what happened, is that the women went first. Uh, that's a, that's a, a mark of authenticity to people who study ancient records. Further, it's very clear from the account, the angel and the stones rolled away. They're wondering as they go, who's going to roll away the stone? And here it is, as you compare account to account, those who went to that early tomb Easter morning were clearly intending to find the body of a disappointingly dead Messiah. They were expecting to find a body. You find that those ladies were going not just as a, to, to make a visit, but as you can, again, compare account to account, they were going to care for his body. I had been quickly placed into this tomb, but they were bringing spices for his burial. Uh, why does that matter? Well, uh, this chapter, if you read on further, tells you that the uh, various leaders suggested after the resurrection that they should fabricate a story that the disciples stole his body. Well, if the disciples stole his body, why would any of them go to the tomb with spices that morning? They were expecting to find him there dead. They weren't intending to go find a place that the other guys had raided that morning. And clearly, as again, I have there on your study sheet, they're alarmed at the sight of an angel, terrified the thought of the resurrection. They struggled to believe. In fact, if you go to the Gospel of John, guess where the boys are right now? The girls are going to the tomb. Where are the boys? They are scared. They are hiding behind locked doors because they're afraid that the same people who came, arrested Jesus, and killed him are coming for them next. So the guys are hiding. I know, I know. Some of you ladies would have been there with these ladies, and some of us guys would have been with, you know, under the table as well. But that's kind of the way it played out. And surely if somebody was writing this later, don't you think there would have been some good, strong male heroes? I mean, come on, guys, write it. Well, uh, I say this, uh, these early disciples, no, there was fear and great joy, it says in verse 8, heavy on the fear Now, I also mentioned there under this same heading, many of these same Easter morning visitors are eventually so convinced of Jesus' resurrection that they willingly suffer and die for its truthfulness. Why does that matter? People die for foolishness all the time, don't they? Again, a lot has been written under this heading, but these are good Jewish men and women. And they have a a faith in the Old Testament scripture. They're counting on Messiah. But they become, listen, so convinced that Jesus has died, yes, and been raised from the dead, that they turn their entire lives on its head, willingly. They step into a whole different way of thinking. They haven't abandoned the Old Testament. They see Christ as fulfilling the Old Testament. And man after man, woman after woman, suffer and die to say, he's alive. I tell you, he's alive. I saw him. Hundreds, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15. A few, then another few, then another few. And then 
over 500 at one time who saw him alive and would say, you know what? Do whatever you like. I saw him conquer death. I saw it with my own two eyes, including one of our good friends named Thomas, uh, who maybe you're like, who at one point said, unless I see with my own eyes, I want to see the nail prints in his hands. I want to see the wound of the spear in his side. And if I don't, I, I'm not having any of it. And then Jesus showed up and said, hi, Tom, Thomas, Tommy, take a look. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God, convinced, convinced. No, these are not easy believers. These are not pushovers. Frank Turek comments on this little point. Uh, those who would say, well, these guys got their minds, their heads together and say, hey, let's, let's come up with a new religion. He points this out. Uh, what did the Jewish New Testament writers have to gain by making up a new religion? Why would they do this? Well, by insisting that the resurrection occurred, they got themselves excommunicated from the synagogue, beaten, tortured, and killed. Last I checked, that's not a list of perks. Well, something to think about, something to think about. Why would they do that? Well, if you're convinced that Jesus actually rose from the dead, you would probably go there. So I, I, I take that one, uh, one grouping, and I want you to remember with me, all of these gospel accounts have little elements in them that are like, like a mark of authenticity to say, no, they didn't just make that up. If they did, they did a really poor job of it. Accuracy, actually, real history. Now, I want to shift over to that other text. And again, it's there in front of you in Romans chapter 1. And there's a reason I want to do that specifically, uh, this, the description that the Apostle Paul gives to Jesus, especially in verses 3 and 4. I want to talk about that for a couple of minutes. What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ prove? If you look at the gospel accounts, you see what is asserted that, in fact, Jesus rose from the dead. No, really, truly in history. And then some meaning of this. All right. The book of Romans, of course, in its entirety is a is one of the most important letters ever written. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of early Christians in Rome. Now, the Apostle Paul himself, the writer of this letter, was also not an easy pushover believer. He was a dyed-in-the-wool, first-century Jewish guy who was convinced when he heard about all these rabble-rousers, early Christians, he was convinced it was just a bunch of nonsense, and he was having none of it. I mean, seriously now. So the Apostle Paul, back in the days when he was called Saul, began his, that point in his career, chasing down these early Christians and trying to discourage the whole thing, beating some, throwing them in jail. And when one of the guys, Stephen, was, was killed for his faith, the Apostle Paul, well, Saul, held the robes of those who were killing him and approved. So Saul was not a pushover. Good Jewish guy. Strict religious man. Well, the book of Acts tells the story of how Saul then met the risen Christ and became so convinced that it was true, that his whole life was turned on its head. And this Jewish guy who had chased down these Christians to tell them, knock it off for goodness sakes, now became one of them. So convinced because he saw Jesus, the living Christ. Now, he's writing a letter about this, wonderful letter. He's got so much to say in the chapters ahead, but he begins with this paragraph, and I want to read this, this text, Romans chapter 1, 1 through 6. 
we read this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, a sent one, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's Old Testament. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. I'm going to focus my attention on verses three and four. Uh, Much to be said in the other verses as well. I have on your study notes this heading. The resurrection shouts the truth about Jesus' identity. And I I want you to hear that today. The resurrection is like the, the final mark of authenticity that God raised his son from the dead saying, it's true. It's true of him. Everything that the Bible says is true. What he said about himself is true. The resurrection from the dead underscores that truth. When people want to announce something, they choose various ways to do it. God chose the resurrection of Jesus, his beating of death. To declare is the word that I have in the Bible in front of me. He was declared to be, declared to be the son of God in power. Very interesting that, that the term that the apostle Paul uses here is, uh, in, in his original writing in another language, translated declare here in English, um, is, is a different word than we might often use for declare. And it's the word from which we get our English word horizon. Now, here in Western Washington, we often don't see horizons because it's cloudy often. So there's kind of a, a, you know, it goes from land to clouds to more clouds. So we often don't see a horizon. But in other parts of the world, I've heard that you can actually at times see a horizon. Well, a horizon is a line. It's a demarcation line. Another analogy would be it's like a line in the sand that marks sky from earth. So it's a, it's a dividing line. So in a sense, Paul's using a word to speak about Christ here, the resurrection in particular, to, to, to say, you know, it's like a line in the sand. Normal people live their lives and die. We know this. And if that's been your uh, road that you've walked uh, with a loved one recently, I, I am so sorry. And let me tell you, today matters a lot. Christ having beaten death. But that resurrection of Jesus, the Bible would teach, is like a line in the sand, a line of demarcation that says, you know, normal people live and die. But God raised his son from the dead to say something, to say something powerful, to say something you need to hear, understand and believe. Now, there are a couple of things here I have on your study sheet. Uh, First of all, this this business of. Who Christ was and is, is really a big deal. His identity, uh, Paul points out uh, in the book of Acts, that, again, aiming at the historicity of these events. He mentions to King Agrippa, I give you the reference, that all of this dying and rising from the dead has not been done in a corner. Uh, that's in Acts chapter 26. Uh, the point being, of course, 
This wasn't just some uh, few people jotting some notes in the margin of a, uh, on a napkin someplace in a diner. No, this was not done in a corner. It was done publicly. Hundreds of people knew what was going on. If it could be proved wrong, it easily it should have been. Somebody would have produced the dead body of Jesus. Something to say it wasn't true. Now, in verse 3, the Apostle Paul deals with one element of Jesus' identity, that is his humanity, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. That's Jesus' full humanity, both his credentials from the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, uh, the son of David, the greater son of David, the kingly line, Mary and Joseph, of course, both in the kingly line, uh, down through David. But Jesus... The Bible tells us fully God and at the same time, fully human. The book of uh, Philippians chapter two talks about this in some detail. Philippians chapter two, a a human body, a human nature um, without sin and yet a human uh, cut him. He'd bleed, crucify him. He would hurt. Take it far enough and he would die. True humanity. And at the same time, then, son of God, God in the flesh. Both of those critical to our understanding of Jesus. True man, so that he could die in your place and pay the penalty for your sin. True God, that he would be raised from the dead by the father. Evidence of God's approval of his son. Both of those elements critical to our understanding of Jesus. True man, God in the flesh. Now, I want you to look with me at that little line in verse four. Paul says he was declared, declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, different ways that we quickly read this and understand what Paul is going to emphasize. Uh, our, I think our initial tendency is in reading this phrase to see the phrase in power or with power, your text may say, and apply that to the glory of the resurrection. Uh, not entirely off base, but in reading John Stott, and the, uh, you know, uh, John, of course, uh, now with the Lord, but uh, 50 years, a, a well-studied pastor and writer. In his commentary on the book of Romans, you can find this on page 50, along with footnotes and so on, uh, other scholarship. He would say, no, the part in power or with power is not so much about the glory of the resurrection, but rather a description of the Christ who exited the tomb that day. So he would provide hyphens, the son of God with power or the son of God in power. Now, certainly the resurrection, a glorious moment, but he's looking, looking more at the credential of Christ, the identity of Christ, the characterization of Christ as he stepped out of that, of the tomb. Think with me like this, Christ in his first coming came as a servant, didn't he? He walked dusty roads. He lived among us, man among men, uh, suffered in the flesh, and died. Uh, as, as, again, many of us know who have attended death, 
uh, suffering and dying is a very humbling experience. Nothing proud about that at all. Uh, The Apostle Paul references some of this in 1 Corinthians 15 as he talks about death itself in contrast to resurrection. He's talking about a person dying and he says what is sown, and that's a euphemism for buried, what is buried, what is sown is perishable. He says what is raised is imperishable. The human body sown in dishonor but raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power. So he's drawing an analogy here, and certainly true with the resurrection of Jesus out from that tomb. The Son of God with power, the one who had suffered, died on the cross in our place just days before, now exits that tomb not as a wounded and suffering Savior, but as the Lord of glory, the Son of God in power. What is it, do you think, that caused the Roman soldiers who guarded the tomb of Jesus to become like dead men? Big, sturdy, linebacker Roman soldiers. These were not sissy men. All right? If you study anything about Roman soldiers, these were manly men. Uh, they were trained to, to fight and die. Something happened that morning that made them, I'm assuming, pass out and later say, you know what? We'll take money to say the disciples stole his What an embarrassing thing for a bunch of Roman soldiers to say. I'm mentioning the text later in Matthew 28. What an embarrassing thing. You mean to tell me that a bunch of Galilean fishermen scared you guys so badly? Seriously, you ran like little kids? Did you really? Huh. Imagine. No, what was it that scared them so badly? I suspect they're guarding a tomb and they know that they're inside is a dead man. And I suspect there's a moment that the stone began to roll. And I suspect there was a moment where there was, it says the earth shook and the one who was dead and they knew it because they had helped with this. The one who had been dead walked out. How are you feeling today? You know, again, I I don't want to extrapolate too much. There are parts of this story the Bible doesn't tell us. Like, did Jesus say something? He may have said something to them. I don't know what that would be. There are a variety of sarcastic remarks that some of us would come up with, but I don't think the Son of God would have done that. But something, when you step out and say, good morning. Uh, Hi, guys. I, I don't know what you would say, but something, something happened for a group of manly men, Roman soldiers, to run like children. What was it? Well, he was declared to be the son of God in power. It's been pointed out many times by people uh, far wiser than I, that the stone was rolled not to let the son of God out. He could have done that himself, I'm sure, but to let people see in. He's gone. And the angels, of course, rolled away the stone, sat upon it, my goodness sakes, declared to be the son of God with power. Now on your study notes later this week, if you're in a community group, I give you those notes, of course, as part of your sermon notes. And there is a a place there where I'm going to invite you to read in Acts 17. One of the places where the uh, book of Acts is full of references to the resurrection of Jesus. The early disciples could not stop preaching on that topic, but in Acts 17, there's a reference and you have it there uh, specifically where, where, Paul ties in the resurrection 
the truth of the resurrection of Jesus with the one who is coming to judge, coming judgment, coming judgment. Um, We don't like to talk a whole lot about coming judgment today. That sounds extremely negative. Actually, it isn't if you're a person who's trusted Christ as your Savior. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you have nothing to fear from coming judgment. Nothing. Because you are in Christ, forgiven by him, an object of his grace and favor. You have nothing to fear from coming judgment. If you're a person who's not trusted Christ as your Savior, you do have something to fear from coming judgment. Because someday, the Bible says, you will stand before God and give an account for why you said no to his son. So count this as fair warning, okay? It matters a lot. It's what I said earlier today. It matters a lot if this whole deal is true, and it matters a lot what you do with it. Well, the Son of God in power came the first time as a suffering servant, will come again in glory. Yes, he will. Ready or not, ready or not, here I come. I hope you're ready. On your study sheet, there are a couple things I invite you to think about. First of all, just this clear statement, I hope you understand. The Bible teaches us that Jesus died on the cross in our place. The Bible tells us very much, Romans 3 is just one text in which this is true, that you and I are accountable to God for the things we've done we shouldn't have done and for the things we should have done that we didn't. Sin. The Bible calls all those things sin. And the Bible says you and I are accountable to the living God for the stuff we've done. The Bible says all of us have sinned. We've missed the mark. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches that Christ died on the cross to pay for our sin. He was our sin bearer. He stood in our place. The wrath of God that we deserved was poured out upon him. And Christ offers you forgiveness. On his account, that is that you would agree with him, agree with the Bible. I've done things that are wrong. I've done, there's good I should have done and I didn't. There's bad stuff I've done I shouldn't have done. I'm accountable to God. And I'm believing that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. He took my place, bore the Father's wrath. Christ rose from the dead. The Bible calls you and the Bible calls me to believe that before God. Trusting Christ as our Sin bearer, our savior, the one who died in our place, rose from the dead. No, really actually rose from the dead. Not just a myth or some cute story. The Bible calls you to do business with God about that. As God allows your heart to believe. God, I believe that Jesus died for me. I underscore here in that second little bullet point, without Easter, there's no Christianity. I know that. And if you're wondering that, if you're a person who's still mulling it over, I hope you don't mull it over forever and let your life pass by. But I'm well aware as a church guy that, if, that, that, Easter, that Easter is like the linchpin. Without Easter, really, truly Christ rising from the dead, the whole thing falls apart. Let's all go home and eat hollow bunnies, right? Well, if you like to think about some of these things, the, some of the objective things I again direct you to, Frank Turk and a number of other guys who've, and gals who've written wisely and well. If you're a person who thinks, listen, would you please do that? No, I mean think, and not just think, but grapple with the reality of a risen Savior. Grapple with it to the point that you trust Christ as your Savior before you draw your last breath. 
And you will. You will. You will. Now, I want to pray for us that God will help us. And then we'll stay standing. We're going to sing a closing song today. But join me, please, as we pray. Stand with me. Our Father, your word is very clear about why it matters. This day we call Easter. Jesus, having died on the cross in our place. Oh, your word tells us indeed death could not keep him. Death could not hold him down. It was impossible for death to keep Jesus. And our Father, we thank you that we celebrate a risen Savior. Uh, Not just the stuff of myths and stories, but really truly in actual time and space rising from the dead. Evidence that we can be forgiven by our creator and our God. Our father, I pray for all in the sound of my voice today. You're, you're working in every one of us in a different way, in a different space, different pace. Our father, would you just continue to do that for every single one of us? Confirm faith in those who've trusted Christ already. And those who are still grappling with these issues, our father, I pray that you'd bring them to a point of decision. The decision of saying, yes, I believe Jesus died on the cross for me, rose from the dead today, today, trusting Christ, Christ alone as my savior from sin. God, do that work in us, I pray, every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.